Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our first podcast episode of Developabilities. My name is Eric Stoker, and I'm the Information Specialist for the Utah Developmental Disabilities Council, and we have a great show for you today. Today's topic is Display History, and I'm excited about this one, and I hope you are. Joining me to talk about Display History is my co-host for today, Dr. Matthew Wapit, who is the Director of the Center for Persons with Disabilities at Utah State University in Logan, Utah. Dr. Wapit, thank you so much for being my co-host for this episode. You bet, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's my pleasure as well. So let's go ahead and get started. So my first question for you, Dr. Wapit, is what can you tell us about what developing abilities came out of the history of the self-advocacy movement? In other words, what kind of abilities did self-advocates have to develop in order to be successful in the self-advocacy movement? That's a really good question, and we probably don't have time to go into all of it, but I think it's important to remember that self-advocacy in the disability field is relatively recent, right? Because all the way up through even the 1970s, even the early 1980s, a lot of people with disabilities were in institutions. They weren't included in our communities. They were not included in our schools. And so people didn't have a chance to develop those self-advocacy skills. And in many cases, right, we know this from Willowbrook and from some of the other institutions, people didn't even have a chance to learn or go to school or do anything. A lot of times they were just shut away um, and neglected. And so um, I think the most important thing that happened in terms of history was deinstitutionalization and moving people out of institutions and into our communities, into our schools, into our workplaces, um, which then gives people a chance to right, develop their abilities and develop their interests. And it gives them a chance to develop those self-advocacy skills that they need to be successful. Does that, does that kind of answer that question? Yeah, it does. And you kind of actually got to my second question too. I was gonna also ask you, um, what can you tell us about the Willowbrook School and how come people were sent to institutions? Okay, that's that that actually does build on my last question. Willowbrook was famous because it was um, it was seen as being one of the larger institutions in the United States where that housed people with disabilities, and that was kind of back in those days, the '60s and '70s. It was people with intellectual disabilities, but also people with mental illness, in some cases, physical disabilities. It was kind of all lumped together. Um, and Willowbrook was famous because a reporter, Geraldo Rivera, right, um, snuck in with the help of a doctor and some of the staff at the school and documented on camera the conditions in that facility and then put it on the evening news there in New York and everybody saw it and everybody was shocked. Um, it wasn't the first time that we'd known there were problems in institutions. Um, the Kennedy family had known for years there were issues and you know there were other people who had blown the whistle and said you know conditions in these institutions aren't great but um, Willowbrook was famous because it's the first time that the public had a chance to see inside and to see what it was really like. And, um, and when people saw, right, kids 
who were sitting on the floor and who were naked, didn't have clothes. There was nobody taking care of them. They were kind of crowded together in these little rooms. Um, there were no lights on. In some cases, these rooms were dark, right? And they weren't they weren't fed. They weren't cared for. Um, that was shocking. And people said, we can't allow this to continue. Um, and so Willowbrook kind of touched off um, a movement, not just parents, but there were self-advocates. I think um, a lot of people overlooked that an important character in the Willowbrook um, story was a self-advocate who lived within Willowbrook named Bernard Carabello. And Bernard was one of the inmates there at Willowbrook who helped Geraldo Rivera sneak in. Um, and uh, Bernard had physical, he had cerebral palsy, um, but he didn't have an intellectual uh, impairment necessarily, but he was he was kind of stuck in there in Willowbrook and had been there for most of his life. Um, and he wanted to help people understand what was happening there. And so Bernard took an active role, you know, to a certain extent, I've, I've heard people call him like the first self-advocate because <laughs> he really helped Geraldo sneak in and bring his cameras in. He's the guy who opened the back door. Um, and, and Bernard took a huge risk um, in, in opening up that institution for the public to see. So, um, so that's why Willowbrook was important. Um, now, why people with disabilities were institutionalized, that's a, that's a much longer story. Do we have time to go into that story? <laughs> yes? Okay. All right. Um, the big, uh, th there were many things that led to people being institutionalized, but the big one going back to about the 1600s was um, the plague. And during one of the last instances of the Black Plague going through Europe, um, people were trying to figure out how to control the spread of the disease, kind of like the pandemic today. It was a very similar situation and people were saying, well, why is this disease spreading? What can we do to stop it from spreading? And one of the things that they looked at was they said, well, it's the plague is traveling from town to town. It must be being carried by somebody. And one of the groups that they looked at and they noticed was beggars and poor people. Unfortunately, a lot of beggars and poor people happened to be people with disabilities in the Middle Ages. Um, that was because it was a trade. So it wasn't looked at today where it's a, it's a negative thing. It was actually a job. Being a beggar was a job and it was an important role within society. Um, but people looked at beggars and said they must be spreading the plague. And so around that time in Europe in the late 1600s, Europe passed a whole set of laws. They were called poor laws. And they essentially made it illegal to be poor. And what that ended up doing was anybody who was begging or who was poor and couldn't support themselves ended up in prisons, institutions, or workhouses. And it really took a lot of the people with disabilities who'd been very prevalent in society up to that point and locked them away in prisons and institutions. And, and they disappeared from public life. Um, and over time, because, you know, so it started because of these poor laws, but over time, the expectation became, well, if you have a disability, you live in an institution. And so families who had children with disabilities, um, or if somebody um, ended up 
developing a mental illness or something, you would take them to the institution and you would say, this is, here's my family member, we can't take care of them or we don't wanna take care of them. And uh, can you put them in this institution? And people would be, people would be locked away for the rest of their lives. Um, and it was, yeah, and these were not, yeah, they were not good places. <laughs> at all. They were not good places at all. They were um, understaffed. People were neglected. In some cases, people were abused. Um, I think people originally had good intentions. And I think that originally the hope was that um, this would be a way of supporting and caring for people with disabilities, but they ended up becoming so overcrowded and so many people that it was difficult for governments and for the people who ran these institutions to care for everybody who was in them. So does that, does that kind of answer that question a little bit? Yeah, it does. It's kind of sad about those poor laws and stuff. I wish, I wish there never was those things. That's kind of pretty sad though. It is pretty sad. Can you, well, and the scary thing, Eric, is that we still have them. It's illegal to beg in a lot of places in the U S still. Um, and so we still have poor laws and we still have laws that um, place people with disabilities at a disadvantage. Man, that's rough. It is rough. <laughs> it is rough. But that's when that's why self-advocacy is so important, um, because uh, we need people who see these laws and notice that they need to be changed. And who are willing to speak up and say, yeah, th this isn't right. This isn't what, um, yeah, this isn't what we should be doing in our society. I agree with you, Matt. So my next question I have is, when the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed and things were starting to change, what kind of things did people with disabilities want to see happen? And what did they do to make them come to pass? Oh, that's another big, complicated question. <laughs> So the Americans with Disabilities Act passed in 1990, right? So that's relatively recent. And in fact, most disability laws have only been passed within my lifetime. So most of these disability laws that give people with disabilities rights um, have been since the 1970s. So they're really, um, it's been very quick that these things have happened. Um, but with the ADA, people noticed that there were things in society that were unfairly excluding people with disabilities. And they said, we want to change this. And so people started to organize and started to, in some cases, protest. Um, <clears throat> and they started to, um, they started to exercise their self-advocacy. They started to speak out. Um, and some of our most well-known advocates today um, uh, really participate in that movement. Think of Judith Heumann, um, right? On Netflix, there's that movie Crip Camp, which is about her and her growing up. Um, Judith Heumann was an important part of that movement. Justin Dart was important in that self-advocacy movement. Um, many other, uh, you think about Independent Living and Ed Roberts, and others who all participated in that. And what they did is they fought for what was really just basic access to society. Um, a good example was in Denver, some of the transportation protests. 
people with disabilities needed transportation to get to school and to get to work, and yet the buses in Denver were not accessible. And so people organized and they started to protest and they would lay down in the street in front of the buses so the buses couldn't move, right? As a way of saying, look, you need to pay attention to us and you need to make sure that these buses are accessible so that we can participate in society. Saying that people can participate and saying that people, you can have jobs and you can go to school is fine, but if there's no way for people to get to their jobs or get to school, then it doesn't make a difference, right? And so people started to notice that and they started to, um, they started to speak out. Um, a good example too with the ADA was um, people who were protesting the accessibility of public buildings, right? And as part of the ADA, um, there was there were actually several times where people went to the U.S. Capitol and were crawling up the steps of the U.S. Capitol. They were getting out of their wheelchairs and crawling up the steps of the U.S. Capitol to highlight the inaccessibility of some of our public buildings. Um, because, yeah, one step, right? makes it impossible for somebody with a wheelchair to get into certain buildings. And so people started to, they got sick and tired of, <laughs> I think, being excluded, right? And they started to, um, they started to act out, as it were. And they, they took a lot of lessons from the civil rights movement. So they, uh, the disability rights movement came after civil rights. And people looked at civil rights and they looked at Martin Luther King Jr. And they looked at the civil rights leaders who were organizing marches and who were um, really speaking out and protesting discriminatory policies. And people in the disability rights movement said, we can do the same thing. We can use these same tactics. We can use these same strategies and we can make a change for the better. And a sort of over the 70s and 80s, um, all of those protests and people speaking out and fighting in their local communities to make public buildings more accessible, to make transportation more accessible, to make schools more accessible, led to the broad passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act that made it the law to uh, that for prohibited discrimination on the basis of disability and then required public buildings and people who received federal funds to ensure that their programs were accessible to people with disabilities. Wow, I can talk a lot. <laughs> You're good. So I, had, so I had a question to ask you earlier, but I was thinking about this from an interview I did with Mary Ellen, but what were you doing doing when the doing when the 80 Americans with Disabilities Act was passed? Just curious for, so anyone, so that way self-ag is kind of like what you were doing when the ADA was passed. I was in high school. So I was a junior in high school. No, I was a senior in high school when the ADA passed. When they actually signed it in 1990, I was a senior in high school. Um, and I don't think I was paying attention to it. I remember it in the news and I remember President Bush signing it. But at that point, um, it wasn't something that I was really paying attention to. Um, it wasn't until I went to college and had some other experiences as an adult that I realized how important the ADA was. That's pretty cool. So yeah. my final, so my final question is, what does the future look like for self-advocates? Like, are there issues that you see coming up for the self-advocacy movement in the next decade? 
such as sheltered workshops, marriage rights, and other current struggles? Oh, that's another big question. <laughs> You're very good at asking these big questions. I could talk for a whole hour about this. Um, there are a lot of there there are a lot of things that we are still working on. Um, so I think one of the big areas for disability rights and self advocacy is post secondary education and training. Um, really opening up college and schooling after high school for people with disabilities. A lot of people with disabilities, people with disabilities have a chance to go through high school, but then many don't have a chance to go on to college or to go on to a technical school or something else. And, um, and they really end up leaving um, the educational system. But in our society, going to college and getting training after high school has become a really, really important part of getting employment. And it's become even an important social aspect. And so I think that um, really focusing on that transition to post-secondary and creating opportunities for people with disabilities to go to college and to participate um, in post-secondary training is important. Um, I think marriage is another big one. There's still marriage penalties, right, with, with Social Security, and there's still uh, marriage penalties and other different disability programs. Um, and so really looking at that and allowing people with disabilities the chance to get married and to have a family and to have employment and to participate in our society like everybody else is another big area for um, for advocacy. Um, related to that is employment, actually related to both of those is employment and making sure that we're creating capacity for people with disabilities to live, work and play in our communities. So uh, people aren't going into sheltered work, but they're being able to go find employment in the community where they can work with um, everybody else. Um, one of the big challenges I think with high school, in, in school, people with disabilities are um, have a chance to interact with um, their non-disabled peers. But a lot of people after high school end up going into a sheltered workshop where all they see are, um, are other people with disabilities and maybe some staff. And I think really making sure that we're giving people a chance to work in the community and to earn a competitive wage um, is an important area for advocacy. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that there's there are people with disabilities who are paid less than minimum wage for the work that they do. Um, and that is something that I think needs to change in the next little bit. Um, I'm trying to think what else. We need to do a better job in high school too, Eric. I've talked about high school a bit. Um, you know, we're pretty good at inclusion for people, for students with disabilities in elementary school. But once students with disabilities get to high school, they become more and more segregated. And I think it's important that high schools and we start training teachers and administrators to figure out ways to be more inclusive and to ensure that students with disabilities have a chance to stay in classes um, with their peers and they're not segregated and taken into pullout programs. Um, so that's another that's another big one. I have a whole laundry list I could go through. <laughs> 
But all of these don't change. Well, so let me go back to what I said earlier. With Willowbrook and everything and deinstitutionalization in the 1970s, a lot of that movement was created by parents groups. So parents who had family members or who had children in these institutions organized and helped get them out and create these opportunities in the community. I think parents are important, but I think times have changed. And I think it's really important that we support self-advocates to do some of this work so that um, making these changes to employment laws and making these changes to the marriage penalty and making these changes to post-secondary education are being driven by people with disabilities who and, and their voice needs to be front and center, I think, in making those changes in our society. I agree with you on that one, Matt. Well, it's a, yeah, it's a big one. Parents, uh, parents were important for a while, but I think that, and parents still play an important role, I think, but I think that, you know, as people learn to advocate and as they learn to exercise their voice and they get comfortable with speaking up, I think um, the, the voices of people with disabilities can be incredibly powerful for changing the world that we live in. I agree with you on that one. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I'd just like to say thank you to Dr. Matthew Wapit for being my co-host for today and to teach all of you, and for teaching, excuse me, all of you about display history. I hope you learned a lot. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day, everybody.